Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today, we're going to be looking at some contrasts and comparisons between Avengers Endgame, one of the biggest movies ever made, and God's Endgame that we see throughout the pages of scripture. And now, here's my message titled, Endgame. Records that Avengers Endgame broke worldwide. And that made sense, considering that the movie was one of the most expensive movies ever made uh, at $400 million. But when it comes to good storylines and good plots, I I love the Marvel movies. I love all of the things that Disney has done with them uh, over the past like 13 years. Some of the movies, I will admit, I thought were a little shaky, weren't my real cup of tea. Uh, The first Captain America movie, I can never get into that movie. It's just slow, in my opinion. Uh, There are other people that I talk about that are like, man, that's my favorite. I'm like, you're crazy. but I enjoy movies. I, I really do. I, I love that kind of stuff. Megan hates it. Absolutely hates uh, sitting down and, and wasting uh, an hour and a half to two and a half hours on a movie. Um, she feels like that that's time of her day that was stolen. Me, on the other hand, I'm, I'm there for it. Okay. And to be really honest with you, it was so cool to see what they had done with these movies, these Marvel movies, these Avengers movies, like over 13 years, they tied into one another so well that it was almost like a, a really big TV series. That's really what it was like, because these movies had little things that would kind of connect Iron Man with Black Panther, or would connect Captain America and Iron Man, and they would just go back and forth between one another, and they were little things. It wasn't so much that the entire plot of the movie was based around this other thing, but it was really cool to see how they kind of went with one another and how they were all pointing to different things. Uh, one of the things that the, the first few movies pointed to was the first Avengers movie. So you have Iron Man having his first two standalone movies and that introducing a couple characters, and then you had Captain America, and then you had Thor, and then you had Hulk, and all of these movies were solo movies, but there was a moment in those movies that pointed to them all having to come together. And that's what led to the first Avengers movie, where Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, Black Widow, and Hawkeye all fight side by side. And it was so cool to just kind of see that play out over a few different movies and then come together in that one movie. And you're like, wow, this was what I was waiting for. So cool and exciting to see happen. Now, they do all these things through in credit scenes and through those little tiny moments that were sprinkled in. And they were so detailed and intricate that it worked. And I enjoy seeing good stories like that play out. I like a good plot. I like to see good resolutions. And sometimes you see bad resolutions, bad conclusions. And that's disappointing. You have an hour and a half or two hours of a movie that's all built up to this one moment. And that one moment was a letdown. That's kind of frustrating. You could probably think of a time that that's happened, where you've sat through a movie and you're like, man, this is so exciting, or you've watched an entire show, and the ending 
was just bad. Maybe you've invested 13 seasons into a show and the way they ended it was just sad. wasn't worth it. You would have liked to have seen the end in a different way. But I think to a degree, we all want to see happy endings. We all want to see the way the story should conclude how we think it should conclude. Everyone lives happily ever after. The hero wins. The city is saved. Whatever the case may be. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if every story had a happy ending? Wouldn't it be nice if that buildup, whether it be seasons, whether it be hours of a movie, was all worth it? And you knew that every single time before going into it. Everything building up to the big moment was worth watching or not. You know, recently I've been studying the Gospel of John. And John is a very interesting gospel. Uh, if you know anything about the Gospels, you've probably heard uh, of a synoptic gospel before. If you haven't, don't worry, I will tell you what synoptic means. Um, we have a visual of that. So the, the bottom is the Greek version of that, synoptikos. Okay? And from that, you have two words that are being put together. You have soon, which is the word that means same or similar. And you have optikos, which we get optics from. Eye, viewpoint, that sort of thing. So you can kind of see how that plays into one another, that word, to kind of spell out what the, it means. Same viewpoint, same view, same vantage, similar view. That's what that means. So we have synoptic gospels. We have gospels that are considered synoptic together. They have the same viewpoint. They have the same view on certain passages, certain parallels, certain instances of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' uh, gospel that are the same. Okay? So you have three of those. Um, there are four Gospels, but you have three synoptics. John is the one that's different. Okay? So I have to tell you about synoptics to tell you that John is not that, that Gospel. So the three Gospels that you have that are synoptic are Matthew, Mark, Luke. John is the different one. So John has some different things in his Gospel that the other Gospels don't have. Um, John is a little bit different, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke have similar um, accounts of the same instances, maybe a little bit of a slight variation, but they have a, a, a similar timeline, a similar everything. John is the one that is different. He is the one that is not synoptic. So, now that that's out of the way, you can see how the other Gospels start their stories. And, and that's important. They're, they're accounts of what happened in Jesus' life. So Matthew starts with the Jewish genealogy, because that was important for his audience, a heavily Jewish audience. So it's important that he starts with genealogy, because that was important. Well, Luke starts off with the birth narrative, and Luke also notes very much so about the Holy Spirit, because Luke has been present not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also Acts, and knows how much the Holy Spirit has been working in the advancement of the church. So when Luke writes his gospel, he notes how much the Holy Spirit is working in Jesus' ministry. And that's important too. But then you have Mark. Mark starts off his gospel with Jesus' ministry. Mark's a, a very cut-to-the-chase kind of guy. So he, he says, yeah, that stuff was cool, but I'm starting where the gospel starts. And that starts with Jesus' ministry. And that's where Mark starts his gospel. John starts his gospel back at the beginning of creation. 
You're like, John, what in the world are you doing? That's a little bit out there compared to what everybody else has been doing. Um, John starts his gospel at the beginning of creation because John and his gospel is very philosophical. It has a very philosophical uh, flavoring to it because John wrote his gospel in a day and age that philosophy was the big deal. So he writes his gospel to tell them about this new philosophy, this new idea, this new way of thinking, and that involves Jesus. And John ties that in with culture. And that's why John kind of starts this off, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You can kind of see how that's a philosophical flavoring on the beginning. So, there's an extremely big event that takes place in the middle of John's gospel, and that's kind of where we're going to hang out. We're going to look at a lot of John's writing today. But there's an extremely big event that takes place in the middle of John's gospel, and it's the culmination or the biggest sign that Jesus does in this gospel. All the other signs have, before this have pointed to Jesus' power over things. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus turning water into wine showed his power over something's nature because Jesus naturally changed water into wine, a chemical compound of water and into wine. I power over nature that I can change something's makeup into something else. And all of these other signs eventually point to this one. And in John 11, happens to be right in the middle of John's gospel, is the culmination of all of the miracles. John calls them signs because they have been building up and showing Jesus' power increasingly and increasingly and increasingly until we get to this point. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at right after the death of Lazarus. The death of Lazarus. If you're following along in your outline, it's the first point. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57 says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what had, uh, Jesus had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go and go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they had made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. But he went from there to, that, uh, to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he not come to this feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that they should let them know so that they could arrest him. Now, this has happened after Jesus has raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. And that was the culmination point. From this point on starts Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and death. 
The rest of the gospel has taken place over a longer span of time. This last half of the gospel you're going to see take place in a very, very short amount of time. But it's going to take up the same amount of the gospel, about 11 chapters. Now, a little bit of extra background story for this is that Jesus had fled the Jews in Jerusalem before coming to heal Lazarus. He kind of got into a little bit of trouble for saying, I and the Father are one. And if you know anything about the Jews at this time, they didn't take blasphemy uh, very lightly. Obviously, we know Jesus wasn't blasphemy. Um, but to the Jews, that was, those were fighting words. So to them, Jesus is blaspheming, and that's a very serious offense. So serious that before Rome took over Jerusalem, uh, the Jews could actually, if they found someone blaspheming and they had another person, another witness, they could immediately pick up the rocks and start stoning them. There was no trial. There was no anything. Before Rome had taken over, that was a punishable offense by death. That's how serious blaspheming was. So now that, the Rome, now that Rome has taken over, they are seeking to arrest Jesus because, well, he has to be put on trial according to Rome. So Jesus escapes from this group of ravenous Pharisees that are ready to kill him. He makes it away, and then he gets word that his dear friend Lazarus is near death. So now Jesus is stuck. What do I do? Do I stay away from the Pharisees? Kind of prolong this. I, I, Jesus says, I know what I, I need to do. I know what's eventually going to happen. But is it the right time? I have a friend that's sick. Do I go back there and face the consequences that I know I'm going to have to face? Or do I stay away? That's the ultimate decision that Jesus kind of has to make. Go for his friend or to stay away. Go to heal his friend. Possibly end up in the hands of the Jews, which would mean his arrest, his trial, his death, his crucifixion. Or stay away and continue his ministry. He knows what it will cost him if he goes back. So if you thumb through the rest of John's gospel, it's at this point that the ball begins to roll towards Jesus' crucifixion. All down to this one decision to go back and raise Lazarus from the dead. It is, because it's abrupt, um, looking at John's gospel, we see that after this, it immediately goes into the triumphal entry. And then Jesus into washing his disciples' feet, which would have happened at the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is the night before his death. And it all comes down to Lazarus. The greatest and most powerful sign, him saying, I have power over death. Not only do I have power over nature, I have power over sickness, I have power over all of these things, but I also have power of the biggest thing that everyone's afraid of. And he did it. His greatest and most powerful sign all pointed to this one. The raising of Lazarus. Everything up to this point had pointed to this, but the raising of Lazarus pointed to the end game. The raising of Lazarus pointed to the end game. So then we skip down a few more chapters, and we get to the cross. 
Now, the fact that Jesus has already raised Lazarus from the dead shows that he has power over death. And that's important for the resurrection to happen. Jesus has to have power over death in order for him to resurrect. If you think about that, Jesus raising Lazarus was only the first step in showing that he had power over death. Because Jesus was about to show that he had power over death again with the resurrection. There's two times where Jesus shows that he has power over death. There are two people that Jesus raises from the dead, himself and Lazarus. And that's important. John chapter 20, verse 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which we know um, in retrospect that John is writing in this gospel, and he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved. John may or may not have missed out on the, the spots that was talking about humility in his own gospel. Um, he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. Um, ironic, but that's how we know that he wrote it. But um, she ran to Simon Peter and the one Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's also a very uh, minute detail. Um, but John has been referring to himself as the other disciple and the one that Jesus loved. But he also includes that he beat Peter in a foot race to the tomb. A very small, minute detail that has nothing to do with anything. But John was just like, ha, I beat you there. And he felt the need to include that. So they reached the tomb, and stooping in, he saw the, the linen cloth lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, let me just bring that up again, okay? Subtle, but let me just, one more time, in case you didn't catch it the first time. The one who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Now Jesus' death and resurrection is something that we look at, and a lot of people look at, and say, well, Christian, there it is. That's the end game. That's what it all comes down to. Wrap it up and let's go to lunch. But what if I told you the cross wasn't the end game? What if I told you it was a part of the end game, but it wasn't the real end game. The cross and resurrection also pointed to the end game. They weren't the end game themselves, but they pointed to the end game. Well, we get the end game in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is also written by John. Uh, another one of the books that John had written, John, as far as we know, um, there's some speculation on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. If they were written by a different John that was prominent in the early church, known as John the Elder, or if they were written by John, the beloved uh, disciple that was referred to in John's Gospel. But all of these books seem to be written by the same person, John, the Gospel of John, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, and also Revelation. Uh, John is also one of the, the biggest writers in the New Testament outside of the Apostle Paul. 
But in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 8, we see the end game. The raising of Lazarus pointed to Jesus, which pointed to the end game. Jesus' death and on the cross pointed to this, this one moment. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain, for those former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, the raising of Lazarus pointed to Jesus' power over death, which was exhibited through the cross and the resurrection, which was done so that we could be free from sin and that we could be restored to a place with God forever in heaven. That is the end game. That was what all of the buildup was for. That was the plan that was in motion ever since the fall of man and in the first sin. Shortly, just a couple verses after we read about the first sin, when God is explaining what all of these things are going to be, what the consequences are going to be because of sin, he mentions Jesus. From the fall in Genesis 3, there's always been a plan for God to be reunited with his people. Just a couple verses after it happened, there was a plan be reunited with his people. You see, the Old Testament points to Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, you see, okay, they need a Savior. There is a Messiah that is coming. That is all through the Old Testament. And it points to Jesus. See, the New Testament points to Jesus too. And then after Jesus' death, it still points to Jesus. So the Old and New Testaments are pointing to Jesus, and we see Jesus who points us to heaven. Endgame. Jesus says, the reason that I came was for this, was for heaven, was for you, to be in heaven. That is the end game, that God dwells with his people, and they will be his children. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. That's the end game. So it's cool to look back in all of these points in Scripture and just see how detailed and intricate these little prophecies were that come to fruition in Jesus. These little tiny things that seem so insignificant 
but they meant something, and they pointed to him. And they would happen through his life and through his ministry, and it's sad that we see in the Old Testament how far Israel falls away from God, and it shows how much they need God and how much they need a Savior, because it all points to Jesus. Just like the little details that are spurred throughout the 13 years of Marvel movies that were made that all come to an end in Avengers Endgame. All of Scripture comes to point to Jesus and His Endgame. The plan that was set in motion. So what does all this have to do with you? That's a great question. It's great that God had the end game plan in mind, but so what? Well, there's a couple things that I think we can take from that. Can we praise God that he had a solution before the problem? Can we praise God that he already knew what he was going to do when the fall of man happened? How he was going to be reunited with his people? Can we praise God that he did the work and paid a price for us at Christ's expense? When we read scripture, do we think about how or why this points to Jesus or God's plan of reuniting with his people? The other thing that this subject entails is, well, in the end game passage in Revelation 21, there's, there's two end games. There's an end game for both sides. There's a good side and there's a bad side. Revelation 21, 8. The good side is that God will be with his people. He will wipe away their tears. He will live with them forever. They will be his people. But the bad side is this, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, there's two choices. There's two end games. And you have the choice to, to choose which one you're going to go towards. See, I hope that you choose the promise of life eternally with our Creator. A life where He will wipe away every tear and pain that we have had in this life, where death will be no more, there will be no reason to cry or mourn or have pain because we are with Him and He is the great comforter. That is the promise that we have to look forward to. All because of Jesus and His death on the cross. See, God had a plan for this end game to come about. He had the plan. He had everything under control. And when it looked like everything was spiraling out of control, God said, don't worry. My son has it all under control. When it looked like sin had won in the garden, God said, don't worry. My son has it under control. When it looked like sin had overcome the Israelites, God said, don't worry. My son has this under control. When it looked like there was no hope for the Israelites to be delivered, God said, don't worry, my son has this under control. When it looked like death had beaten Jesus on the cross, God said, don't worry, my son has this under control. Are you living with the end game in mind? Do you live with heaven in mind? Do you live with that hope? See, Peter tells us that we are to give uh, an account for the hope that we have. This is that hope. The hope that Jesus was who he said he was. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That Jesus died to reunite God with his people.
people. Do you live with that in mind? If not, how can you? I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. Maybe you have some steps that you want to take. And you want to, maybe you've never taken a step. Maybe you've taken that step before and you've fallen away from it. But if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, or that trust has maybe fell short, and you want to do that again, why don't you come? Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.